I would like to open the inaugural Davos in the Desert Gala by thanking the dignitaries that committed to this event. So welcome the Honorable Paul Gosar, United States Representative from Arizona's 9th District, Chief Justice of the Arizona Supreme Court, the Honorable Clint Bullock, Arizona State Senator Justine Wadsack, representing Arizona's District 17, Arizona State Senator Frank Carroll, representing Arizona's District 28, Arizona State Senator Shauna Bullock, representing Arizona's District 2, Majority Leader of the Arizona House of Representatives, Leo uh, Biasucci, representing Arizona's District 30, Arizona State Representative Julie Willoughby, representing District 13, Arizona State Representative Lauren Hendricks, representing District 14, Chairman of the Arizona Corporation Commission, Jim O'Connor, Arizona State Mine Inspector, Paul Marsh, Sun Yang, Senior Pastor of Eden Korean Church, Rabbi Mendy Deitch of the Polak Chabad Center for Jewish Life, Ms. Mesa, Katerina White, and Ms. Gilbert, Danielle Skranik. Uh, I could begin by telling you a joke about a rabbi, a Korean pastor, and two winners of beauty contest uh, <laughs> going to a nightclub. Uh, <laughs> but uh, for diplomatic purposes, I think I'll just uh, thank a few of the individuals who helped me make this event possible. Uh, first and foremost, Joseph Yang. Uh, Joseph has been my right-hand man for over the past four months. He was instrumental in recruiting many of the attending dignitaries. He was of tremendous assistance in marketing efforts that we undertook and was always highly reliable and professional. Whatever I asked him to do, he got done. I'd also like to thank Lesson Phyllis Minkus. Uh, Phyllis manually sent out many hundreds of invitations to the gala over the past several months. And I'd like to thank our sponsors, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Michael Stoller, Dr. and Mrs. Lionel Lee, Mr. and Mrs. James Kasky, uh, Nothing Bundit Cakes, and uh, uh, Dilly's Deli. We very much appreciate your support of our gala and our anti-globalist mission. I'd also like to thank my beautiful wife, Naomi, for her support throughout the process of developing this event. Before we begin the program, I would like to observe one minute of silence or prayer for the innocent victims of Hamas's barbarity. Savagery directed at the Jewish people not seen since the Holocaust. Let us pray for the murdered, injured, kidnapped, and their families, and pray that, notwithstanding our wide open borders, we should never know anything approaching such wickedness. Okay. <clears throat> My name is David Wanatik, and I am the founder and CEO of Davos in the Desert. What is the mission of Davos in the Desert? Davos in the Desert is dedicated to putting a dent in the globalist movement. Why is this important? Because globalists are scheming to control every aspect of our lives, largely through the hoax of climate change. 
and because some globalists seek to end our lives through the weaponization of healthcare. Allow me first to talk about globalists seeking to control our lives. As with so many other cults, such as David Koresh of the Branch Davidians, Jim Jones of the People's Temple, and Charles Manson, today's occult of globalism instructs us that the only way to avoid climate change-induced Armageddon is to completely and unquestionably submit to every one of their commandments. Globalists slash fascists insist on dictating the stoves, air conditioners, washing machines, and light bulbs we buy. Never mind that such appliances will work less effectively and wear out faster. Mike Bloomberg-backed C40 cities seek to place strict limits on the number of items of clothing we can purchase each year and severely restrict air travel to once every three years. Nearly 100 globalist mayors, such as Phoenix Mayor Kate Gallego, have agreed to forbid us from owning cars of any kind and to ban the public from consuming meat and dairy by 2030. Much of the globalist control machinations revolve around creating food insecurity. Ranchers no longer raise cattle. Farmers pay to refrain from growing crops. Shortages of baby food. Ransacking of grocery stores resulting in food deserts and rising dependency on food banks. We are expected to resort to eating insects and to stomach highly processed frankenfoods. In the globalist view, we should expect to pay more and to accept less we should welcome a lower quality of life. The globalist power grab largely rests on the lie of man-made climate change. There is no man-made climate change. Stephen Koonin, former undersecretary for science at the US Department of Energy under the Obama administration said, human influences currently amount to only 1% of the energy that flows through the climate system. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's chief of staff said, the interesting thing about the Green New Deal is it wasn't originally a climate thing at all. It is all about overhauling the entire economy. Nonetheless, globalists never tire of sowing climate change fear. At a recent conference in Switzerland, Al Gore said humanity is putting an amount of carbon dioxide into the air that is equal to 600,000 Hiroshima atomic bombs exploding every single day. If you wanted to forge the perfect fraud you wouldn't be able to find better material than so-called man-made climate change. Somewhere in the world, there will always be hurricanes, tornadoes, typhoons, earthquakes, forest fires, floods, droughts, and the like that could be cited as evidence of climate change. These headline-grabbing natural events are ripe for sensationalized clickbait, promoted by journalists that apply as much discretion to their reporting as a Kardashian on Tinder. Almost invariably, those that report on natural disasters have no scientific background, but are certain that climate change was the culprit. Even cases of arson are often reported as being sparked by climate change. Progressive politicians, such as Hawaii's governor, are now quick to blame wildfires that result from their mismanagement of electric utilities and forests on climate change. The dogma of so-called climate change is now both a get-out-of-jail-free card for incompetent progressive politicians and a means to entrap the citizenry in a state of less liberty and less wealth. Climate alarmists have warned us that the Earth will be doomed in, in the next 10 to 20 years, since at least the 1970s. Isn't it interesting how climate fear mongers typically arrive at timelines 10 to 20 years out? 
Such time frames are, the, are immediate enough to scare legislators into promoting anti-growth and liberty-depriving legislation. Yet these timelines are distant enough so that a politician's dire predictions will be tested only when he has left office. Similarly, woke bankers bemoan the impending loss of our shorelines only to originate 30-year mortgages on those same oceanfront properties. The church of the climate apocalypse never has to be right because its believers never lose faith. Again, there is no evidence of long-term climate change. Temperature trend analysis over several centuries is impossible as all statistics related to climate are right from manipulation. The time periods and geographies selected can make a world of difference. Computers have only been ubiquitous since the 1990s. Without computers, it was almost impossible to manage data. Few volunteer temperature trackers of yesteryear even had graph paper. The papers they did have often became soiled, disheveled, burned, windstrewn, and misplaced. It was hard to read handwriting on discolored paper. It was easy to forget plus and minus signs when recording cold temperatures. Sometimes temperatures were collected at different sites, different elevations, or different hours of the day. There was notable variability in measuring instruments as well as greater inaccuracy of the same thermometers over time. And then there is the Mandelbrotian effect. Benoit Mandelbrot, the father of fractal mathematics, said that the more powerful the measuring instrument becomes, the greater will be the reading of the thing being measured. Volunteer temperature recorders took vacations, became ill, moved away, and died. Long lapses in highly imperfect data collection would have been remedied by guesstimations. Given all of these challenges, I don't believe that researchers can accurately determine temperatures within a fraction of a degree over the past century or two. Current day temperature measurement is also subject to manipulation. Temperatures are usually taken at the airports where the temperatures are affected by pavement and aircraft engines. I have to believe that measuring the temperature at Sky Harbor International Airport must produce much different results today than was the case 100 years ago. And if that wasn't enough, temperatures are supposed to be taken in the shade at two meters above the ground. Now temperatures are measured in the sun as well as closer and closer to the ground. If you aren't getting the temperature reading you want, just take the temperature a little closer to the ground. Assuming all modern day temperature variations, assigning all modern day temperature variations solely to human activity ignores the more important factors such as the height and coverage of clouds, volcanic activity on land, volcanic formation in the oceans, ocean currents, the proximity to water, the sun's brightness, plate tectonics, variations in the Earth's orbit, the Earth's axial tilt, the gravitational influences of the moon, and even the occasional impact of meteorites. Many of these effects are not fully understood. What is even less understood is the interaction of all of these variables. Into this vortex of ambiguity is a tapestry of, of research tricks. For instance, William Happer, a professor of physics at Princeton University, and Richard Lindzen, professor of atmospheric science at MIT, argued that the claims used by the EPA to justify new regulations are not based on scientific facts, but rather political opinions and speculative models that have consistently proven to be wrong. These scholars go on to write, the unscientific method of analysis relying on consensus, peer review, government opinion, 
models that do not work, cherry-picking data and emitting voluminous contradictory data is commonly employed in climate change studies. As long as an academic arrives at the conclusion that humans cause climate change, anything can be published in a reputable scientific journal. Patrick Brown, co-director of the climate and energy team at Johns Hopkins University, referring to his paper on climate change causing wildfires in California stated, I just got published in Nature because I stuck to a narrative I knew the editors would like. Other authors have had peer-reviewed articles published that claim that penises cause climate change. Many purportedly scholarly papers claim that there are strong links between racism and climate change. Why have so many climate change researchers claimed that there is climate change? Well, first of all, there's a tremendous amount of fraud in research in general. I hate to be the bear of bad news, but there is. The president of Stanford University resigned in the summer of 2023 after a series of investigations exposed serious problems with his research. Also in June of 2023, it was revealed that Harvard Business School professor Francesca Gina falsified her research. According to some surveys, researchers themselves believe that the incidence of fraud in research is between 14 and 33%. In 2022, there were 5,500 retractions of academic papers, up from just 40 retractions in 2000. There are many reasons why there is so much fraud in research. Academicians live in a publish or perish world. Funding for research is very competitive. For instance, in recent years, the National Institutes of Health approved far less than 20% of its grant applications. Also, there has been a proliferation in the number of contributors of academic papers. Several decades ago, there were usually only a few contributors to a paper. Now there can be over 100 contributors to a paper. So why does that matter? Because if a crazy paper is published, like penises cause global warming, few young researchers will seek to refute such paper if 100 influential people in his field have contributed to that study. So why is there so much fraud in climate change research? Well, because your funding and career will be put at risk if you take issue with the climate change litmus test. On the other hand, if you parrot the climate change myth, you will likely get a piece of some trillion dollars governments have allocated to climate change research and development. Dr. Judith Curry, who recently stated that the overwhelming consensus on the climate change crisis is manufactured, talks about how she was treated like a well-compensated rock star when her research seemed to show a dramatic increase in hurricane intensity. Now that brave climate researchers like Judith Curry have been somewhat unmuzzled, the truth about climate change is coming out. A group of 48 Italian science professors stated that human responsibility for climate change is unjustifiably exaggerated and catastrophic predictions are not realistic. More than 1,600 scientists signed the World Climate Declaration, which holds that the alarmist climate messaging pushed by global elites is purely political. Greenpeace founder Dr. Patrick Moore testified that the man-made climate change narrative is a dangerous hoax perpetrated by the elite to take away our most basic freedoms. Recently, Nobel Prize winning scientist Dr. John Clauser stated, man-made climate change is a hoax promoted by globalists to depopulate the planet. To the globalist way of thinking, the best way to protect humanity is to rid the earth of humanity. Voltaire warned us those who can make you believe absurdities 
can make you commit atrocities. Man-made climate change is an absurdity, and any attempt to depopulate the earth is an, an atrocity in the waiting. Globalists are serious about wanting to depopulate the earth. Stanley Johnson, Boris Johnson's father, said that ideally the United Kingdom's population should be 10 to, to 15 million people, down from 70 million people. King Charles's father, the late Prince Philip, said he wanted to be reincarnated as a virus that would eliminate billions of people. Dennis Meadows, who has served on the faculty of MIT and Dartmouth College, and a keynote speaker at the launch of the United Nations University, said that the global population should be reduced to one or two billion people. A celebrated Cambridge University economist thinks this number should be as little as 500 million. I suppose to his credit, Professor Meadows said that he hopes that the reduction of some six or seven billion people will be accomplished in a humane manner. These calls for implied democide may seem far-fetched. It may seem unlikely that C40 cities such as Phoenix will really ban meat and dairy products by 2030. However, I have learned never to underestimate the mendacity of progressives. Let us think back to just four years ago. If in 2019, research revealed that the Nazis used surgeries and hormones to turn Jewish boys into girls, we would have been horrified. If in 2019, we learned that the Chinese were turning little Uyghur girls into boys, we would have been irate. Within just a few years, we experienced the mainstreaming of the mutilization of our own children. The mangalization of American children is now a matter of government policy. Divorcing parents in California that do not support their children undergoing sex changes lose custody rights. The Biden administration threatened to suspend lunch programs at schools that try to block the mengalization of their students. Globalists such as Yoram Noah Harari, an intellectual driving force at the World Economic Forum, are already ramping up anti-human propaganda by derisively referring to human beings as worthless eaters and hackable animals. When human life is so degraded, it becomes easier to put forth policies that end life. As mentioned, vulnerable teenagers are railroaded into medical experimentation that renders them infertile. Partial birth abortions are demanded. California Democrats are dramatically reducing the bar for administering euthanasia, thereby greatly increasing the addressable market. It used to be that 15 days had to pass between a patient choosing to be euthanized and the act taking place. Now vulnerable people can be euthanized in just 48 hours in California, far less time than the six to eight weeks it takes to get an appointment with the pain specialist. Doctors in places like California are being forced into administering euthanasia with diminishing allowance for conscientious objection. Since becoming legal in 2016, the number of Canadians killed by physician-assisted suicide nearly doubled between 2017 and 2019. Prime Minister Trudeau, who wins rhapsodizing praise from the World Economic Forum's Klaus Schwab as an alumni of that organization's Young Leaders Program, suggested that euthanasia could be a good decision for people that are depressed or poor. More than a third of the Canadians who opted for medical assistance in dying 
cited concerns as being a burden to their families. The perception of choosing suicide is changing from tragedy to a matter of nobility. Even the Judeo-Christian notion of the sanctity of human life is being mocked as old-fashioned, Western, and unenlightened. Ragtag bands of child abusers masking around as legitimate social justice warriors in places like New York's Washington Square chant, we are coming for your children. We are coming for your children. Yes, our children are under attack. We know of the pressures schools place on children to undergo, undergo sex reassignment procedures. We know the filth that is taught to them in school. We know that er even very young kids are being taught that to be accepting of sex with so-called minority attracted persons. My dire prediction, and I hope I am wrong, is that it will not be long until children are indoctrinated that suicide is a perfectly acceptable life choice. I have another concern. Will the destruction of gender be followed by the destruction of humanity? Hillary Clinton recently called for formal deprogramming of Trump supporters. Matthew Lau said at a tech talk that we could get people to stop eating meat by using genetic engineering. These statements may sound crazy, but they come from a former United States Senator and Professor Lau is the director for the Center for Bioethics at New York University, a so-called expert on human rights and a darling of the globalist movement. People like that may have the drive and ability to make the programming of humans, such as the Chinese are doing with the Uyghurs, much more efficient. Again, I ask, will the destruction of gender be followed by the destruction of humanity? In the context of this question, globalists calling people hackable animals becomes very scary. One concern is that globalists seek to decode and manipulate our genetic makeup. They want to change our behaviors and thoughts. Another concern is that if software is downloaded into people, the subjects could become part human and part software. Just as progressives claim that there are 51 genders, progressives could claim that there are 51 variations of people, each partially programmed with various code. Perhaps woke policymakers will model such human taxonomy on North Korea's 51 castes. Euthanasia will be much more marketable if part of the pitch for euthanasia was, was that ending life is no more morally troubling than deleting outdated software. Globalists are not waiting for the further development of genetic engineering to control healthcare. They have found their elixir, pandemics. According to Dr. David Bell, a former medical officer and scientist at the WHO and a Davos in the Desert podcast guest, as recently as 2019, the WHO stated that pandemics are rare, insignificant in terms of overall mortality. Now the WHO and the entire UN system consider pandemics an existential and imminent threat. Dr. Bell continues, logically, pandemics will only become more frequent if someone intends to make them so. The World Health Organization is very close to empowering itself with dictatorial powers that will permeate across the globe. These powers can be ignited based on the mere risk of a pandemic. Evidence of an outbreak of a pandemic is not necessary. And the definition of potential pandemic is wide open. 
In its efforts to detect pandemic risks, the WHO surveils for viral variants, which is to say it surveils nature. The WHO can call anything a health emergency, including racism, inequality, and especially so-called climate change. It can cite the article in the American Medical Association Journal of Ethics that called gun violence an infectious disease, even though no germs or pathogens cause people to shoot each other. And it doesn't have to be people that are said to be at risk of a health emergency. The WHO will be able to trigger its power grab if it perceives that plants, animals, or the planet are at risk. Once the World Health Organization makes a health emergency declaration, the WHO can cause its signatory countries to implement quarantines, mandatory vaccines, vaccination passports, and to control our movements and interactions with others. The WHO seeks, to power, the, WHO seeks the power to dictate border policies and require signatory countries to implement exacting censorship. I may be called a conspiracy theorist, but these things happened just a few years ago. How did WHO advisories work out for patients during the COVID-19 pandemic? Due to censorship, the populace was provided with only a little one-sided information and consent wasn't sought. We were essentially forced to become vaccinated. Those hospitalized with COVID-19 were basically forced to take remdesivir, which killed 53% of the patients in an Ebola trial and is banned in 50 countries. Many hospitalized patients were deprived of ivermectin even though it had been prescribed three and a half billion times before the outbreak of COVID. Concern for patients' well-being was thrown to the back of the bus during COVID. Hospitals that administered rendisivir received bonuses and billed as much as a half a million dollars. Hospitals would only make about $3,200 if ivermectin was prescribed. In thousands of cases, patients who refused remdesivir were given the drug in their sleep or they were given sedatives like morphine first and then in their stupor were given remdesivir. In a similar vein, many other COVID patients were placed on ventilators against their will. Further, ivermectin had to be demonized because the vaccines wouldn't be able to get emergency use authorization if a viable alternative existed. And if tens of thousands of worthless eaters died during their mistreatment at hospitals, so much the better because those statistics could be used to discredit the Trump administration. All of this is a long way from the Hippocratic Oath, which states, first, do no harm. Great harm was caused by vaccines. While I can't state this number with the degree of confidence that Bill Gates predicts the arrival of the next pandemic, some scholars report that 17 million people died from the mRNA vaccine. Today, the standards for putting new vaccines on the market are very low. Since there is tremendous pressure from the WHO to create vaccines within 100 days, little data is required and there are no clinical trials. The criteria for approval is may be effective, not safe and effective. Concerns by regulators are left unanswered by some pharmaceutical companies. There is no adherence to good manufacturing practice. There is no informed consent. Manufacturers assume no liability. There is no congressional or judicial review. There is no recall process. In view of these things, the Florida, General, the Florida Surgeon General said that the new COVID vaccine is, quote, inhuman and that he would not recommend it to any living, living being on the planet. 
If you see that a restaurant has four bad Yelp reviews, you don't patronize that restaurant. If many hundreds of thousands of people complain about lethal side effects of a vaccine, you shouldn't have to repeatedly go back for booster shots. However, with vaccines as the price to pay to escape lockdowns and enjoy some semblance of freedom, huge swaths of humanity may submit to more vaccine shots during the next pandemic. Not every single injustice during COVID can be blamed on globalists, but I fear that if we were to channel Patrick Henry and present an ultimatum to some globalists, give us liberty or give us death, those globalists would quickly respond by saying death. Globalist health entities like the WHO were cited in the implementation of vaccine mandates and repressive policies. It is important to realize these policies were couched merely as WHO suggestions. The next set of globalist health policies could be in the form of mandates. Our healthcare should be a private matter between a doctor and his patient. Informed consent should never be compromised. Health policies should never be mandated on a one-size-fits-all basis by a foreign entity, such as the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, the European Union, the G20, or the United Nations. As Henry David Thoreau said, when others think for you, they will soon stop thinking about you. None of these organizations are directly accountable to the electorate. In the case of the WHO, at least 50 of its members did not even claim to be democracies. The decision-making within the WHO is not democratic. For example, an expert panel voted nine to six not to call monkeypox a public health emergency. So the director general of the WHO break what he deemed to be a deadlock by ruling that monkeypox was a health emergency. There are no appeals processes within these organizations. Worse yet, these organizations are wildly intertwined. Given the incestuous nature of the globalist cabal, we have no idea who is controlling pandemic policies. The EU defers to the WHO. In some cases, deference is given from the WHO to the G20 or to the United Nations, who in turn rely on the WHO for its expertise. Can we really count on these organizations to for formulate healthcare policy with wisdom and compassion? Do we really want the United Nations Human Rights Council to be the arbiter of life, especially when that body intentionally excluded the victims of Hamas's murderous rampage when it recently observed a moment of silence? That despicable stunt is diplomatese for pissing on the graves of the slayed innocent and underscores the point that globalist bureaucrats should stay the hell away from our healthcare. While these organizations are self-referential, they can be easily manipulated. The majority, of, as much as 85% of the WHO's funding comes from wealthy individuals, private companies, and foundations. The privately directed research projects they support can be very dangerous. A bad actor like George Soros could come up with a thesis such as that all Republicans that have been in the same room with Donald Trump are carriers of a lethal virus, for example, you come up with a crazy thesis, and somebody like Soros could fund a research project at the WHO to test his hypothesis. The terms of this research could be that Soros would pay for all the costs associated with the research, and then when the report is submitted to his satisfaction, 
he would grant $100 million to the WHO. Of course, in return for the initial funding, Soros would require that his researchers and preferred methodologies be used. No WHO official will risk their comfortable jobs, lush pensions, and their children's WHO-funded schooling by objecting to such sponsored research projects. Thus, a wealthy person, foundation, or company could use the WHO as a tool to propagate the vaccines of their choice or to implement its preferred social policies throughout the world and do so with relatively little money. The globalist machinations are taking place behind our backs. There is almost no discussion, not in the public square, state capitals, or Congress, of subrogating our healthcare, individual liberty, or sovereignty to world organizations. There are no such referendums. Elected officials are supposed to protect their constituents from the whims of foreign and unaccountable authoritarians. Unfortunately, it looks like Democrat senators are deciding to become accomplices to the globalist juggernaut. Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson authored the No WHO Pandemic Treaty Act, which would re require the advice and consent of the Senate for the United States to be bound by WHO dictates. Not one Democrat senator has stepped up to co-sponsor this bill. In other words, Democrat senators seem to be saying to the globalists, have your way with our constituents' bodies and liberties, whoever you are, wherever you are. What kind of nonsense is that? So what is Davos in the desert doing to support its anti-globalist mission? Well, we are fortunate enough to be based in Representative Andy Biggs's congressional district. We support Andy Biggs's proposed legislation, H.R. 79, which is named the WHO Withdrawal Act. H.R. 79 has gained 51 co-signers. I redrafted H.R. 79 not to dilute it, but to widen its appeal by providing context to the proposed legislation. My proposed edits are available at the Davos in the Desert website, which is davosinthedesert.us. We will do what we can to help Representative Big secure more co-sponsors. This is not an easy campaign. However, I am convinced that a strong campaign will do some good. Our efforts may encourage other groups in the U.S. and around the world to bring attention to the threats that globalists pose. Just the threat of countries withdrawing from the WHO may reduce the mendacity of that organization. And that would be a significant accomplishment. I'm in discussions with the Tennessee Citizens for State Sovereignty. This Tennessee-based group passed state legislation that enables the nullification of federal laws that deal with issues other than the 18 powers enumerated to the federal government. I'm researching the merits of seeking similar legislation in Arizona, also researching how cities can become sanctuary cities in terms of becoming exempt from globalist mandates. So we will do what we can to spread our anti-globalist mission. We have already built a large library of important podcasts, which is available at our Davos in the Desert website. We hope that you will support our mission by becoming a member of Davos in the Desert, financially supporting our cause, or by volunteering. I can't expect my progressive friends to join our cause, but I can encourage them to withdraw their support from globalist movements. Wherever your politics lie, wouldn't you want to participate in local decision making, where your voice can be heard, rather than have foreign policies imposed upon you? 
to my progressive friends, I would say, you wouldn't like it if some amorphous foreign power tried to regulate your life by requiring you to work for a living, move out of your parents' house by the time you turn 36, or to bathe at least twice a month. So let's have whatever policy debates that we need to have at the local level. For representatives of, of large corporations that are members of globalist organizations, seek to cause your company to withdraw from those organizations. If you don't want to belong to an organization that promotes genocide, you certainly wouldn't want to belong to an organization that promotes democide, or at least seeks to drain humanity out of our bodies by regulating almost all of our, acti of our activities. Just divert your funding. Divest from organizations that seek depopulation. Or be prepared to explain to your shareholders, customers, employees, and channel partners which of them you think the earth would be better off without. And uh, that concludes my remarks. Thank you.